0: The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello and welcome to a special episode of the Capital Weekly Podcast. Today's episode was recorded live Thursday, September 28th at a conference on women's health. Our podcast today presents panel two on health equity and our panelists are Sonia Young-Adam of the California Black Women's Health Project, Stephanie Brown of Sutter Health, Andrea Rivera of the California Pan-Ethnic Health Network, also known as CPEN, and Martha Santana Chin of HealthNet. Our moderator for today's panel is Ana Ibarra of CalMatters. We're going to go ahead and thank our sponsors and get right into the panel after that. Thanks for tuning in.
1: Support for Capital Weekly's Conference on Women's Health was provided by the California Healthcare Foundation, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations, the Western States Petroleum Association, KP Public Affairs, Perry Communications, Capital Advocacy, Lucas Public Affairs, the Wideman Group, and the California Professional Firefighters.
0: I'd also like to thank our moderator for today's panel. Ana Ibarra covers health policy for CalMatters. Her stories focus largely on healthcare access and affordability. She has reported extensively on COVID-19 and California's safety net programs. She started CalMatters in 2020. Prior to that, she spent four years at Kaiser Health News in Sacramento. Her work has also appeared in the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, USA Today and other national news outlets. She grew up in the San Gabriel Valley in Southern California, and she currently lives in Bakersfield with her husband and their dog. And so I'm going to go ahead and turn that over to Anna now. If you have any questions, please post them in the Q&A function, and we will try to get to them in the last 10 minutes or so of the program. So thanks again for tuning in. Anna. thank you for taking over, and I'll hand it over to you.
2: Thanks so much, Tim. So I'm gonna go ahead and introduce our speakers for today's panel on health equity. Uh, So first we have uh, Sonia Young-Adam. Sonia Young-Adam, a University of Pennsylvania Wharton School of Business graduate, uh, endeavors to develop and support transformative intervention in under-resourced urban communities, including South Los Angeles, where she was born and raised. In October, 2014, she joined the California Black Women's Health Project as Chief Executive Officer. Uh, The organization was established in 1994 to empower Black women to take personal responsibility for their own health and to advocate for changes in policy that adversely affect the health status of Black women. We also have uh, Dr. Stephanie Brown. Stephanie Brown is a board-certified emergency medicine physician practicing at Sutter's Alta Bates Summit Medical Center in Oakland and Berkeley. Uh, Dr. Brown contributes her clinical uh, at the Institute uh, Dr. Brown is the clinical lead for Sutter Health Institute for Advancing Health Equity, and at the Institute, Dr. Brown contributes her clinical and population health expertise to advocacy, research, education, and innovation efforts to improve health outcomes for vulnerable people across Northern California. We also have on our panel, Andrea Rivera. Uh, She joined California Pan-Ethnic Health Network in June 2021 as the Senior Legislative Advocate. She is responsible for the development and management of CPEN's state legislative and budgetary agenda. She plays an integral role building relationships with the state policymakers, partners, and other allies, allies. Rivera's commitment to uplifting the voice of communities of color has led her on a path of social justice advocacy. And lastly, but not least, we have uh, Martha Santana Chin, who currently serves as the Medi-Cal president for HealthNet. She is a proven leader with over 25 years of experience in driving better outcomes for underserved communities at managed care organizations. In her current role, Santana Chin has executive oversight of the Medi-Cal line of business, serving over more than 2 million members. She works to provide access to high-quality, affordable care and partnering with community stakeholders to support local needs. She's also responsible for positioning the business in the market and oversees the carrying out of health and its product and service area growth. So thank you all for, for being here. Um and I think this is a really important uh, uh panel. Uh we know that we've seen, oh, you can turn on your cameras, I believe, now. Um so again, thank you all for being here. Um I am really excited to talk about uh, to have this discussion with you all on health equity because I think uh we've uh, you've all been doing work on this area for many, many years. Uh, but I think for the general population, health equity and terms like disparities, right, really um, have started, we're starting to hear more about them, I think, even more so um, after the, the height of, of COVID-19. Um, you know, one of the things that I remember hearing the most in reporting on COVID was that we now couldn't, hide disparities, that they were very obvious um, and that this is something that we have been dealing with in healthcare for many, many years, but this sort of put a new uh, lens to it. So Let's go ahead and and get started. Um, You know, I wanna set the context a bit before we dive into some of our questions um, or some of our topics. Um, I was wondering if we can go around and really kind of talk a bit about when you think about disparities and inequities in California's healthcare, um, what comes to mind for you first? Uh, You know, in the work that that you do, what type of disparities are you trying to address? Um, Sonia, why don't we get started with, with you? Certainly. Thank you, Anna. It's good to
1: be in a space with you all today. And I appreciate the opportunity to be here to talk about this very important issue around women's health. And uh, given my work and my role with California Black Women's Health Project, you know, when we think and, you know, speak about disparities, I mean, we're talking about disparities really in everything, you know, that pertains to our health. I mean, we find ourselves that's black women and um and girls um particularly in california we find ourselves you know at the bottom you know of the you know, of the list we find ourselves at the top at the bottom of the list where things are supposed to be good and the top of the list where you know things are considered um you know terrible in terms of health and we we think about disparities and i think about disparities you know that really i can't isolate it from you know, the issues and the challenges that we have, you know, in the state and in the nation around, you know, historical racism and, and, the, and, and how it continues to, you know, weave its way through all areas of our society. So the disparities that we see, they don't happen in isolation. I mean, they happen, um, you know, in a system and in a space where, you know, they are allowed to happen, where they are you know, sometimes even institutionally ingrained, you know, in a, in a system. And sometimes, you know, where, you know, we see uh, what is often considered, you know, unconscious bias, or we see, you know, that people are, you know, operating in ways that maybe they don't realize, you know, that they are, um, you know, part of a big problem. Um, But, you know, the, the, the changes that we recently saw around disparities where we really started talking about equity, health equity inequities, and, you know, sort of the language change. We had a narrative shift. You know, I continue to use disparities because, you know, I know that that is something that when people see numbers, when they see data, you know, they tend to at least respond to that. You know, when you're talking about inequities, people just say, Oh, you know, what's not fair. What's not just, Um, but when you talk about disparities and you see them in such extreme numbers. You know, to me, I challenge healthcare all the time. You know, what about triaging? (laughs) Isn't that what you do? Um, You know, don't you care for, you know, the the most difficult cases? Don't you, you know, separate those and distinguish them, you know, so that you're paying attention to them. So, in my view, we're not really addressing disparities broadly enough because we're really not addressing systemic and structural racism, broadly enough and they go so closely together that if you're not dealing with one you're not really dealing with the other
2: dr brown you want to go next sure thank you
3: thank you for that getting us off to such a great important start sonia um at the uh, Sutter Health Institute for Advancing Health Equity, we, uh, as uh, Sonia also mentioned, uh, we we look at everything, um, and we're really looking at um, quality metrics. Um, really thinking about when we think about disparities, we're talking about disparities in health outcomes, um, and really measurable differences that we can then um, do something about, create you know innovative ways to deliver healthcare that that's different and can really close those gaps. So we have three main focus areas, um, chronic disease equity. So it's looking at you know, things like cardiovascular disease, diabetes, uh, cancer screenings. Um, we also look at mental health equity, which is very, uh, very important. Um, and then we also have a, a big focus area maternal and birth equity, um, which we know, you know, the Black maternal health crisis um, is just, it is at, also, as Sonia mentioned, it is a product of structural and systemic racism. Um, And, you know, we, again, as she said, we have to start there um, in order to address the problem. Um, We also have a very big initiative at Sutter Health um, around the social determinants or social drivers of health. We know that the conditions in which we are are born, we live, we work, we go to school, um, our access to healthcare and other important things um, in our lives, are really driving 80 to 90% of our health, our total health. Um, And so we're really focused on how we build meaningful community-based partnerships um, that can really address the social drivers of health. Um, Because if we don't do that part as well, we can't help people achieve their optimal health. You know, you have a 15 minute doctor visit, and then the rest of your life is outside of there. And that's the part, you know, we as, as a healthcare organization really want to understand, we've got to measure this and understand it um, so that we could figure out how we can best partner and build these partnerships um, so that we can achieve that. We can't, you know, healthcare, we can't do everything, but we can screen for it. We can acknowledge it. We can, you know, talk about the fact that, you know, structural racism is affecting our patients and then we can build those partnerships Um, and really make a difference and start to to see those gaps and disparities close.
2: Andrea, why don't we have you go next?
4: And thank you all so much. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here today. And, um, you know, I think I'd like to really uh, focus on um, the role that racial disparities have played into all of this, right? I think a lot of that has already been said. Um, But, you know, I would say that for racial disparities, that's where we really see You know, things largely unchanged, stubbornly embedded, Um, even, you know, despite all this, you know, I would say more of an interest from state leaders over the recent years. um, When we look at the the data and the access rates, the utilization rates, communities of color still underutilize their health care. Part of it is access. And I would say that there's been, you know, a sharpened focus on expanding access to care. But, you know, it also um, is more related to use of care and utilizing those services um, because that's where you really see the most jarring racial inequities that communities of color are just not accessing mental health um, services related to physical health. Um, And then we talk about, you know, COVID-19 and how that really pulled back the curtain for, you know, a lot of the things that we already knew existed, right? And I think it just really exposed all these inequities. Um, And then you think about how it's, you know, incredibly unfortunate that it required a pandemic for leaders to acknowledge, right, and really make that acknowledgement that these things like social determinants um, are the root causes and disproportionately impact communities of color, you know for Cpen and you know the partners that we work with we've been drumming you know the beat on racial inequities for quite some time um really is you know a core principle to ensuring that we can adequately combat health inequities and we've been doing this since since 1992 when LA experienced um, the hardship of Rodney King and then you fast forward to 2020 when we saw the murder of George Floyd and then you start to think you know, OK, we have made some progress, but in the grand scheme of things, it's relatively minimal. And race still just continues to be this determining factor in whether you're able to live or thrive and have a full and healthy life.
2: Thank you, Martha. Good
5: morning. Um, thank you. And, um, you know, I very much appreciate the comments that everybody has um, already expressed, um, agree whole, wholeheartedly with most of what's already been said. Um, when you think about inequities, it really is everything. And um, the way that we think about it as a health plan is, you know, how can we take the silver lining that was um, presented to us through um, the aftermath and the awareness that the pandemic did bring on inequities? And um, we, we are optimistic that, you know, many of the policy changes that have been implementing more recently um, will have a longer-term impact. The the charge for us now is to execute on many of those things, right? And so um, as you think about community health workers, doulas, and the promise that they might bring to really making systemic uh change, it's it's very powerful if we do it right. If we make sure that um they, the workforce is looks like the people that we serve, comes from the communities that we serve, has lived experiences, and is able to build the trust that we so de- desperately need to build. We can break down some of those system barriers that I, you know we all know exist. Um, the other thing, though, is that there is a lot to do still. And um, one of the things that has happened in the state that we should all be very proud of is that coverage has been an absolute imperative. Like we understand healthcare coverage is the starting place. We've got to make sure we have coverage for everybody. And the, you know, the recent additions of even the undocumented populations, I know we're not all the way there yet, but we're more or closer to it than most other states. That being said, we've got to serve all these people. And we know, especially in our Medicaid program, that there is a shortage of uh, clinicians, physicians, um, we know that in uh, most of the states that, you know, the, that have heavy concentrations of Medi-Cal uh, members or um, patients, um, they're health professional shortage areas. And we also know that the physicians that are serving these communities don't look like the people that they're serving and that the pipelines on um, the, the medical school front aren't any better, right? Like we've got, we've got to improve that. There's a lot of room for improvement. So from an inequities perspective, one of the things that we really believe is critically important is not only executing on, you know, the policy and the and the opportunities we have ahead of us, but to also start to focus on, on what's next, which is that pipeline for getting more culturally congruent providers in the system. And so, um, you know, we're, we're hoping that that also begins to get a lot more attention by way of policy, policy and by way of systems, because we've got to be able to, you um, have a better representation of um, underrepresented communities in the medical field.
2: Thank you for that. Um, you know, and and I, I'm glad everything you've you've mentioned is is on my list to talk about. So uh, that we're off to a great start. And um, you know, I feel like we can't talk about um, health equity and women's health without really jumping on talking about maternal health right and i'm already see some um uh audience questions about this topic and so you know i i know that one of the Grimmest stats in, in medical care is, is the rate of pregnancy-related deaths. Um, maternal uh, maternal mortality rates among Black women are three times higher than those of white mo- women, according to CDPH, um, although I know that depending on the source, sometimes that is a little bit higher. Um, you know, there's also a disparity based on the type of health insurance for birthing mothers, right? Women on Medi-Cal uh, tend to do, um, uh, tend to fare worse than women on private insurance. Um, you know, these these aren't new new findings, but it seems like every so often we see the the news story, the report uh, about this. Um, and so, you know, I, I want to talk to to Sonia and Dr. Brown about this. Um, Sonia, maybe I can start with you um, on, you know. Because this isn't new, because we know we've known this for years, we have the data. Right. Um, why haven't we seen significant improvements in this area? what's what's lacking? What are we missing? you know, what 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 can we do next?
1: Well, I mean, you say we have the data. Um, but California's uh, report, you know, on this subject was just released. I mean, it's been thirty years since there's really been, you know, that level of intensive reporting on on this subject. And so the report is out. I'm very proud to say that uh, California Black Women's Health Project myself, you know, we're a part of um an advisory group that was led by Black Women for Wellness, um, you know, to get this report completed and produced. And it's um <clears throat> it, it, the data, you know, certainly. I mean, we you know, it's kind of a thing that, you know, it's like we all know, you know, mm-hmm. it's like we know, you know, what is happening, um, particularly if, you know, you're working in this area, if you're you know if if this is a you know sort of a cause for you and so many people you know have entered into this you know work because of their own lived experiences um you know with this challenge and then they begin to advocate and begin to ask the question why is this happening and then you learn that it's something that's very pervasive around you know our community our families our sisters and you know we keep you know we hear about it but we we had trouble for so many decades you know getting not even just the state, because I mean, you know, we're, we're really talking about this nationally. I mean, it's, you know, it's not just a California issue, although people expect for us to be doing better and we're not. Um, But, you know, finally getting, you know, getting legislators, getting hospital systems, getting other getting the public health department to begin to talk about this issue and allow us to express it and acknowledge what the root cause is. I mean, I, I live in Los Angeles County, you know, our offices, our organization is statewide. We're headquartered in Los Angeles County, and I will tell you, it was Dr. Barbara Ferrer, who's the head of Lake County Public Health Department, was the first person that I ever heard to acknowledge that racism is a root cause in this issue. I mean, I really, I mean, I've been up and down the state, and I, I would hear, you know, different advisory groups and different medical professionals and different public health departments that would not even would even want to say that race was a factor in this So the the you know what do you say you admitted it or you you know you're acknowledging it at a system level and then the states deliberate an intention to invest in the perinatal equity initiative. I mean that is that is really right now a game changer and it has given room and space for everything from financial investment to other resources, to statewide campaigns, to the opportunity for counties to develop intentional interventions around this. And some of it has to do with letting the public know that we are developing and working, all of us, to develop alternatives because we cannot always trust that the that the medical system will be there to provide us with a safe and sacred birth. I mean, we can see the data. So what do we do in the interim? Part of it is the development of community-defined practices, the building of of our own, you know, systems and supports, you know, the expansion of doula care, midwifery, you know, those things that we know in our community from our history and our heritage and our culture, you know, that that have an opportunity to hold us and to support us through what is supposed to be the most, one of the most, you know, amazing and beautiful experiences of our lives. And at the same time, we know that the medical and the healthcare system, the traditional system, you know, is is at least acknowledging that something needs to be done, that changes need to be made. Where do they do it? How do they do it? We are fortunate at California Black Women's Health Project to be a part of a number of collaboratives, you know, where we are working closely, you know, with the system to integrate Community-defined care to integrate, you know, our, our own support and services along with the medical model to provide, you know, this sort of hand, this warm handhold navigation through these systems for um, Black women and birthing people. I mean, it's it's necessary. It's it feels like we're in a time where, you know, there is the possibility of, you know, of the hope for this thing. Where for a long time we we couldn't even get anybody to talk about it. So, I mean, we are at a place where, you know, you can feel better about the potential, but at the same time, and and, and uh, Dr. Brown mentioned it, and I think maybe Andre mentioned it, I mean, you know, the, the, the health professional shortage and the lack of diversity in healthcare, it's like this combination of things that makes it particularly challenging. You know, so at least where we have, um you know non-clinical, you know, birth support, um, and then the midwifery and and potentially we will grow um, you know, the numbers of black midwives. I mean, that is just I mean, you know, that's a whole nother level of disparity, challenge, inequities, you know, racism in a in a practice that that used to be you know, one of the richest ones that we had to support birth in our communities. I mean, that, you know, changed. and and because of systems and money and, you know, all of the things that we've already talked about. So um I, I feel um inspired, encouraged, um, particularly, you know, as California is, you know, sort of the door is open, and it's hard to close it at this point. So, you know, we hope that we will continue to see progress, investment, uh, resources, acknowledgement, um, legislative changes. You know, more opening. I believe very much in, in expanding the scope and practice of of um, you know you know certain people along the continuum of healthcare, um, because we need to come into a, a healthcare space. Differently, we not the fifteen minutes that Doctor Brown talked about. I mean, that is that that is not enough to build a level of comfort, you know, for some of us. And the the transfer of knowledge, you know, that you hear from a doctor. I tease my mother all the time that we have to get a uh, Google out to to determine like what the doctor actually wrote, and we're like, okay, now let's let's translate that so that we can say what it is that the doctor told you to do next. I mean, there are so many things that you know need to be addressed, but a community. Um, integrated approach as far as I'm concerned is the most important thing that we can do in this area of maternal disparities at this point.
2: Thank you, Sonia. Dr. Brown, you just wrote about this for Capital Weekly. Um and I saw, you know, one of the lines that stood out the most to me was you're a physician. You're both of your parents are physicians, um, but you're still very scared uh to be, you know, part of the statistics. Um Can you talk, I mean, you work at a health system, can you talk, I guess, at the clinical level, what is being done by hospitals, by health systems to to improve um, these gaps and and these disparities?
3: Absolutely, Um, and you know, that point is just so critically important um, uh, with regard to Black maternal health and the uh, mortality rate, because your zip code can't save you, your income level, your education, all of the things that we think if I, you know, that will increase my access. I can understand my health literacy is better. I can advocate for myself. But regardless, all of those things held to be the same, the mortality rate is three to four times as much for black women compared to white. Nothing can save you. And that is very frightening. That's frightening for all of us. Um, And knowing that, you know, racism, discrimination and bias are the the root causes of this problem. Uh, As a health system, we have to, you know, we've got to both, as um, it's been mentioned before, improve and seriously invest in our pipeline uh, because racially concordant care has been proven over and over again to improve health outcomes for different communities. Uh, So we've got to train more Black clinicians um, and the institutions that serve black women have to do a better job of recruiting and not just recruiting, but recruiting and retaining a diverse workforce. So this calls for a strong commitment to diversity, equity and inclusion that creates a place of belonging where racism and discrimination are not tolerated. And the commitment to diversity must go all the way to the top of the organization. So that's the first thing is really that commitment to the workforce, to creating a space for where racially concordant care can happen um, and really investing in the pipeline. Um, This crisis also demands innovation. We have to innovate. We cannot do the same thing that we've been doing. Um, It's just not working. And so at the Sutter Health Institute for Advancing Health Equity, what we really aim to do is start with the data. So we define the problem with real numbers, the real patients that we take care of. Um, And then we can create interventions. When we understand what's happening, we can disrupt that cycle and really create new interventions um, and approaches to how we deliver care. So we are currently piloting several programs in our maternal health innovation labs that are studying some new approaches. Um, We are looking at the use of postpartum depression screening app, for example, which now, if you can really start to screen increase the number of touches, for example, that a patient can have with a healthcare system where we don't have to drag them in for an inconvenient appointment time for 15 minutes and think we're going to do everything, but really creating a new space and opportunity using technology to, to do screenings and connect people whenever they're having a, a mental health need um, in the peripartum period, that is going to make a big difference. Um, we're also looking at doula care, and we've already, we've heard um, Sonia mention that, um, but again, we need to understand, we need to evaluate and understand how we can incorporate such a valuable resource into the healthcare setting. We can't do, we don't know everything inside of, inside of the walls of healthcare. We've got to build these bridges and these community partners, um, and really start to evaluate it with real numbers and really look at outcomes and think, how can we expand the way that we take care of people to include innovative models um, that will really start to, again, move the needle um, here. So it's really starting with the data, recognizing that racism is the root cause and then building the workforce that we need and committing to it. um, And then also really trying to um, mitigate and weed out that unconscious bias that really is pervasive. Um, we've got a lot of uh, innovation and programming as well around um, unconscious bias, which I think we may get to in a later segment, so I'll stop
1: there. Can I Can I just add, as, uh, as Dr. Brown mentioned innovation, you know, I, I think that when we think about culture, you know, we don't have a healthcare system that's really designed to look at cultural differences in care. I mean, maybe it is for some cultures, maybe, but for the Black community in particular, I mean, we're... We are a, like a collective, you know, our, our collectivism is what's important, not like our individualism. I mean, we we probably likely respond better to group care, to group opportunities, to coming together. So the way our system and our, our society is set up where individual healing, individual this, individual approaches, the 15 minutes, I mean, we can share 15 minutes and 15 of us can show up. You know, and and get probably a better level of care, and then we can talk about it and come together to work together to to care. So that even innovations, just um, you know, sort of stepping out of like you know, sort of what what the the medical books and the training and the practices tell you have to be done. I mean, that is that is something that it's the the opportunity is there, and I hoped after COVID that we would see so much more of that but you know i mean we moved to you know telemedicine which was oh now you can't go back from that which is great but i wish that we would have be been able to move to a more culturally um you know supported you know representative of how people would seek and, and and access care and how that could be much better done particularly for our community because i you know i know yeah. that that would be a better opportunity for healthcare
2: yeah. And I want to bring Medi-Cal into this because, you know, California has put a lot of work into expanding the Medi-Cal program. And um, I believe starting in January 1st, we'll see the the um, the last uh, the remaining group of, of undocumented folks uh, um, co- qualify for full scope Medi-Cal coverage. Um, and I want to ask Andrea, the work you're doing at CPEN, and I, and I don't know if there's a way or, or or if anyone's measuring this, but, you know, people who are gaining this new access to, to Medi-Cal, are you seeing any um, improvements in terms of them seeking routine care or do we see them, you know, do we see more women, you know, seeking mammograms, getting uh, uh, prenatal care earlier on, um, you know, doing cancer screenings more routinely. Um, what are you hearing? What do we know um, about how that's how this new access to Medi-Cal is rolling out for these populations?
4: Yeah, and, and thanks so much for that question. You know, I think um, obviously, you know, all these expansions to, um, to Medi-Cal to make it a more, you know, holistic, um, you know, healthcare system have been super important. Um, but I sort of go back to, you know, what we see when we start to compare what access looks like and then actual like utilization right and that's where you see so much drop off um you know i think that there's and rightfully so because you know relatively like this expansion of you know medical and and health for all is is pretty young right um i mean it's been around for 10 years a campaign but in the grand scheme of things um you know there's been i think more of an effort to do education and outreach, get people enrolled in coverage, right? And that is the important first step. But as far as like that second step to educate folks on, well, what are the the benefits that you can get? Um, You know, a lot of people don't know that you can get dental benefits under Medi-Cal, Vision, right? All these other mental health services, right, that really go into um, ensuring that Um, you have the the most accessible care Um, and that's sort of you know I think the the issue here and then I also want to take us like a a little bit of a step back and you know I think we saw you know with Medi-Cal redeterminations that almost half of all people that lost their coverage um, are Latinx Um, and then in addition to that we already knew that Latinos were more likely to be uninsured than any other um, community of color in the state. Um, Right. And so there's definitely a lot more that we can do, I would say, to ensure that people are actually, you know, getting the mental health care that they need, the preventative care, um, you know, to address these issues like maternal mortality rates and making sure that people have comprehensive perinatal services and postpartum care. Um, You know, these expansions to Medi-Cal um, you know, to provide doula services, community health worker services. These are all part of, you know, I think the the part of the the issue that we still have to resolve, which is what are we doing to ensure that communities of color are actually utilizing these services and these benefits. I think the other part of the issue, and you know, this was talked about earlier, that um, you know, the healthcare workforce, right? It's not, it does not reflect the diversity of our state. Um, There's so much more that we can do for, you know, to ensure that uh, our workforce is culturally accessible, linguistically accessible. Um, And this is where I sort of go back to the important role that, you know, like community health workers and doulas play, because these are um, culturally, um, you know, accessible workforces, they come from the communities that they serve. um, You know, and I think that there's been over the last couple of years, a lot more of a focus on what we can do to, you know, like integrate these community-based frontline workers. Um, But these conversations are, you know, relatively new. And I think that there's a lot more for us to continue to address as far as how we can make sure that, you know, we actually see like uh, the successes that we want with all these expansions to to Medi-Cal and that people are, you know, not just getting enrolled in care, but also, accessing their care Mm
2: -hmm. and Martha I think that leads you know right to you how how are we health plans the state um working to make sure that people you know are using um services what are how are plans in the state working to pretty much improve um outcomes overall I know there's a lot of work in that area so maybe you can talk a bit about what uh you and HealthNet are, are doing
5: yeah absolutely um so the, in the big scheme of things is these programs are very young mm-hmm. right they're they're in their infancy um what we are really focused on is making sure that we start with make, with having strong networks right networks of community health workers doulas um and other uh members of the care team that can help expand access if we do it right right so A physician who's caring for administrative care coordination type of work could probably care for more people if we partner them with a community health worker or if they understand the value that the dual can bring to their practice, right? Um, So first, we're focusing on the partnerships that it's going to take to really build the workforce that we need to deliver the value that is intended. So we're partnering with organizations that are very local, very grassroots, very community based that have been doing some of this work for decades, quite frankly, um, through grant funded programs. And we're helping to figure help them, helping them figure out how to create programs that are sustainable, draw revenue streams from the benefits that we now have available and um, getting them connected with technical assistance providers so that they could uh, fulfill um their aspirations, right, to become uh, uh, solid network providers. Um, There's a lot that we have to do still in the state to build the kind of workforce that it's really going to take for us to deliver uh, the value. I mean, as an example, you know, we have um, over 2 million members, and we believe that roughly 70% of them actually qualify to get community health worker support. That's thousands of people that it's gonna to take to get that job done. We don't have thousands and thousands of people in the workforce today. So step one, partnerships with local community-based organizations to build the workforce that we're gonna to need to deliver the care. Um, the second piece is you know, building that ecosystem, right? Making sure we're partnering with practices, federally qualified healthcare centers and others so that they could connect with and um, Expand their teams with these networks of um, uh, supportive services providers that can help their practices. Um, one of the things that we often hear from our provider community is how hard it is to reach the unengaged, and in some cases, it's not because physicians and and, and practices aren't trying. It's because we have bad phone numbers, bad addresses. It's hard to get a hold of them, but they're on the rolls, and so. Um, now with these new services and benefits, we can start to do some more grassroots work to knock on doors, to really inform policy, to make sure that when um, people are applying for benefits, they're giving cell phone numbers and an ability for plans to text with them because there's restrictions around some of that today. So the next is creating that ecosystem, right, to really make sure that we're using these benefits um, in an opt- at optimal rates, and then measurement, right? So um, there are a number of areas that we're really focusing on. Your traditional quality metrics, um, preventative screenings, prenatal, postpartum care are only a few examples, but we're also very intentionally focused on measuring, engaging the unengaged. Are they connecting with the healthcare system? Are they accessing community health worker benefits? Are they, you know, connecting with uh, their, their primary care providers and the like? So that's that's the other part of this. And then more recently, because of changes that have happened with uh, reimbursement levels um, in the Medi-Cal program, we struggle with getting providers that care for commercial populations to care for Medi-Cal populations. OK, I mean, the money's just not there for them to sustain their practices. And so um, the recent uh, change or the recent investment through the budget to elevate the level of reimbursement for um, OBG maternal health providers, primary care providers and behavioral health providers is something that we as health plans have been advocating for, for a very long time. And we're finally, you know, we're finally making some movement in that direction. I've been working with the medical program for over 30 years. And the only thing I had ever heard about rates before is this threat that when budget uh, budget budgets met crisis levels, that we were going to have to cut 10%, that infamous 10% reduction finally going away. And now we're we're talking about getting a little closer to parity, right? So maternal health providers, primary care providers, and um, uh, behavioral health providers, the idea is that we want to be able to reimburse them at the equivalent of at a minimum 87.5% of Medicare. That's not going to get us to parity in the commercial space. Some of these providers are getting 120% of Medicare, 140. I mean, it just depends on, on the part of the state in which you operate, but it's a, it's a step in the right direction. And the reason I raise that is because as we're standing up these services, as we're standing up these benefits that are intended to address some of those disparities and get people navigating through the healthcare system much more efficiently, we have to care for expanding that physician pipeline. Because without that access, we're never going to be able to make the inroads that we're going to need to make. Um, So um, at a a very high level, you know, we're really focusing on the systems, scaling these services, scaling these benefits, but doing it in partnership with community and really focusing on engaging um, people with lived experiences that speak the language. um, Because we understand that in order to make progress, we've got to build trust. That's step number one. And as you heard, you know, other panelists describe so um, eloquently, I mean, it's just, we've got to start there. And so um, there's still, like I said, there's still a lot of work to do, but, you know, we're moving um, the pieces forward as best as we can and in partnership with our communities.
2: Yeah. And so we do want to get to questions, I think, in five minutes, because we do have a lot of um, uh, uh, questions from the audience. So for anyone who wants to uh, answer, answer this one, you know, at at the state level, um, what are there any uh, recent bills or actions that you've seen and you've some of you have mentioned some already um, that you think can really make a difference or that you're really hopeful will will make a difference in advancing, you know, the 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 work around equity that you all are doing. Any bills or um, uh, new laws, uh, any budget um, um Allocations that you think are are very promising um, to 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 help us in this area. Um, feel free to jump in, anyone. I can I
3: can start. Um, thanks for the question. Um, so uh, AB eighty five um, would in- ensure that health teams have resources to conduct the social determinants of health screenings. Uh, make referrals and community, um, and then also provide community navigation services. So as I mentioned, and we keep talking about the social drivers of health are responsible for so much, the vast majority, 80 to 90% of our overall health. So this bill uh, sponsored by uh, uh, Assemblywoman Dr. Akila Weber um, would really um, provide funding for that uh, to happen. Um, So it's critical that healthcare organizations will be able to play our part in screening for these vital needs. And um, you know, what happens again? We keep I keep talking about that 15-minute visit, but we've got to find ways. You know, we how are we supposed to expand what people need to do to screen, to make those referrals, and to build those ties back to um, the places that our patients uh, live and work and go to school um, without you know the 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 ability to do it? We've got to have the ability to expand that time period. Um, And you do that by providing the the funding to do it. We cannot continue to have unfunded mandates um, onto our uh, already stressed uh, healthcare workforce. Um, So at Sutter Health and the Institute, um, in in, uh, partnership with our population health division. We have been, as I mentioned, studying how to best screen for and address the social drivers of health in a variety of healthcare settings. So in the acute care side, um, as well as in the ambulatory side. So that means inside of the hospital and in the community um, in our clinics. Um, and that happens in real time at the point of care. So understanding how can we address these critical components of who our patients are and what they need in such a challenging um existing climate of um, these short visits and other realities of our of our healthcare landscape. So again, the funding um, AB 85 would demonstrate a clear understanding and commitment to the vital nature of uh, addressing the social drivers of health.
4: And I'd like to jump in here too and you know just quickly say that for CPEN, I think that we're particularly excited about you know, recent investments Um, in Medi-Cal to, you know, now provide community health workers as a fully covered benefit. Um, There was also, you know, just this year, the recent expansion to provide mobile crisis services to people who are enrolled in Medi-Cal, right? Both of these things, I think, really go hand in hand with, you know, this concept of the community-defined evidence-based practices, right? And quite honestly, really honor what community members have been asking for for a long time to really, you know, um, start to be innovative um, and utilize, um, you know, forms of of trauma informed care, culturally competent care, like CHW's mobile crisis services that you know, move us away from, I think, how we've traditionally treated uh, mental health and, you know, other um, illnesses and and diseases to it being more of a, like a public health kind of issue, right? And really looking more holistically instead of, um, you know, like, well, what can we do to just I mean, you know, prevention and intervention is also important, but what are some of those tactics that we can use to ensure that people have like the navigation services that we've talked about through CHW so that they do utilize their benefits and understand, well, maybe I'm enrolled in Medi-Cal and that also means that I can enroll for other uh, social safety net programs, right, and sort of have that ability to work with someone uh, that can really understand their needs.
2: I'm being told we got to move to Uh, uh, audience questions now. Um, So I'll I'll just go in in order here. Um, So the first one says, my question is related to the individual level. I'm hearing a lot of stories of nurses ignoring birthing people of color, downplaying their pain and leading to tragedy. What is being done on the ground level to ameliorate communication and racial understanding to lead to better healthcare provision to birthing people of color? Whoever thinks they can answer this, please jump in.
3: Um, I can start uh, really quickly. So um, the Senate Bill 464 is the uh, California Dignity and Pregnancy Act. Um, And one component of that uh, requires that um, any hospital or facility that provides perinatal care um, provides uh, that that those all of those clinicians and staff must uh, are required uh, to uh, undergo unconscious bias training. and so that really can help to bring the things you know. We we have all grown up in this in this environment, and whatever ways that we've been conditioned by our society, and knowing that structural racism, systemic racism, you know, it affects all of us. Um, and and so the way that we move unconsciously can can determine you know it can be life or death for people. Just like we said, not not believing someone you know is in pain. Um, Discounting their their symptoms, um, things like that, and so really that training is designed to bring people to focus and really um, understand how to think about when you're interacting with someone that is different from you, to overcoming uh, that bias. Um, we've taken this further at Sutter Health. Um, we've been so we trained. Um, Two thousand, about twenty five hundred perinatal clinicians and staff um, for this uh, requirement. This- We're up to about eighty-five percent of our workforce um, that's required to take that training. But what's really exciting, also, we've we've done a few other things. We had a symposium in last fall on unconscious bias that was uh, done in partnership with the California Medical Association, Physicians for a Healthy California, uh, California Primary Care Association, and Genentech was our uh, gracious sponsor for that. We were able to bring thought leaders and experts in this field. including Assemblywoman, Dr. Akila Weber, together in a forum with over four, uh, 400 attendees um, to discuss what are the innovations around unconscious bias? Because it's we know that clicking through a 30 minute training isn't going to be enough. Um, so how do we take this further and really bring this work, you know, uh, in measurable ways um, to the forefront? Um, we've also, uh, several of our medical groups at Sutter Health went beyond this sort of mandated training and said, hey, we're not perinatal clinicians or staff, but we, we feel strongly. We want all of our physicians and um, staff to be trained as well. And so they took this initiative. And so at the Institute, we were able to then pilot and evaluate um, what it looks like for all clinicians to uh, undergo uh, unconscious bias training. Um, And then even further, which I'm really proud about, is that all of the clinician leaders across the system voted to require unconscious bias and health equity related education and training for credentialing. So if you are going to be a clinician working at Sutter Health as of January 1st, 2024, everyone is required to undergo this type of education. And that is self-governance. We did that on our own. And we are so proud of that, you know, to be a Sutter clinician, we care for over 3 million people um, in Northern California. And the fact that we stepped up to the plate to do that and require that of ourselves is really sort of moving us in the right direction as well on the ground.
1: Do, do I have time to comment on that? Sure. Yes, please, Sonia, go ahead. Okay, Okay. thank you. Dr. Brown, I'm so happy to hear you talk about it because earlier in this um, panel, you talked about the you know, need for things to come, you know, from the top. And now you're talking about it also even coming, I wouldn't say from the bottom, but I think you understand what I'm saying. But it is a matter of these things meeting, you know, at a place where you see these changes and the, and the desire, you know, to to be a better, you know, provider, a better caring space for people that you're seeing it, you know, sort of penetrate its way from the top to the bottom, bottom to the top. And I'm so happy to hear about that. And I look forward to learning more. I wanted to add, though, that, you know, there is also, you know, from the the, the patient side, I mean, we've always advocated, even before, you know, there was this, you know, great awakening around, um, you know, equity and disparities and the talk around even um, maternal and reproductive health challenges, disparities, you know, that you know for 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 black patients, you know, visiting clinicians, you know, I've always encouraged them, don't go alone. I mean, you know, and and it's because there's, you know, just an opportunity, you know, maybe for you to inspire better communication. It's like you show up and maybe the person on the other side in the in the white coat or jacket, you know, f- may feel, you know, just an opportunity to have a better relationship with you if there's, you know, someone else asking questions as well. Um, and so having doulas, I mean, if we're just, you know, even if we're not only talking about, uh,
0: you know, um
1: maternal health, but, you know, having a birth worker, having a, a community health worker, having someone there, you know, to support creating, you know, a safer environment for any person seeing a health professional when you're talking about your pain, because those, those things that you say, I mean, it, it gave me, you know, and it always just makes me cringe because it's really so deeply rooted in the dehumanization of, of Black people in this country, like our, our pain isn't real and our, you know, we, we can handle more pain, you know, than, than other races. I mean, it, it just goes back in so deep, you know, that it's not going to, it's not something that's going to change, you know, sort of like with just the unconscious bias training or, or, just, you know, this innovation or that, you know, um, you know, that law or that legislation, I mean, it is, it is so deeply rooted. I mean, if, if there's that feeling, even in the history of medical training and education, you know, that gets a person in front of you to say that you either only want opioids or you want this, or you, you're not really feeling it. I mean, that, that comes from some deeper place. And I think, you know, it's just, there, there's, there's safety to me in numbers. There's, you know, there are changes, but it could take generations, you know, for us to really see the absence of that kind of thinking, you know, in an environment and, and knowing that like a patient's life is at stake, you know, if they are complaining that they have problems in their leg or pain, and then you don't realize their blood clots. And then ultimately, you know, you have that that loss of life or potentially some, you know, the loss of the child. So, I mean, we, we have to do more, but I'm not sure that the do more you know it's like how do you legislate the heart how do you legislate that you don't you know like i mean we have to just become a better society but if we're not looking at you know racism and we're not looking at culture we're not looking at the history you know and i and i'm speaking particularly the black people in this in this country if we're not looking at that or willing to really acknowledge that yeah, we're, we're not going to address that. So we have to protect ourselves too. When we come into these environments, we have to have ways and we have to have support to help us advocate, you know, for a safer environment when we're in the healthcare system
2: yeah thank you for that and Andrea, i thank you for helping me answer some of these questions on the chat i so see you're doing that um i want to jump to this question because a couple of you talked about this um you know getting people of color to use healthcare resources the question says what would be the most effective way to encourage people of color to, to utilize healthcare resources while there's so much cultural distrust of the medical system because of the attention being drawn to the disparities and mistreatment in communities of color that are so prevalent um uh, the, the, the public, the public, private,
1: you know, community connection, the integration of community defined practices with the medical model. I mean, you're not going to get the trust unless you have those trusted messages. What did we do during COVID? It took the community you know, to inspire and support. And I'm sorry, Andrea, I might have stepped on you, so forgive me for that. But it took the community, you know, to to bring, you know, <laughs> those Folks together to be able to say, okay, I can, I can maybe trust this, and I'll pursue this, and I'll get this, because you had to go to the trusted messengers in order to do that. And it's going to be, to me, it's the same thing that's necessary for you know how we move forward um, in getting utilization rates up, and and may and and looking at the potential of different models of care. And I really strongly believe in a group model. We in black communities, it's the sister circles. It's, we even do a brother circles, and we can provide services there that, you know, that uh, range from community practices, you know, all the way up the scale to, you know, talking about diabetes and training people around the issues and the challenges that impact our health and our communities.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And there was a similar question asked to Andrea, and I don't know if you've answered this one, Andrea, but it was, it was you know, what do you think are the root causes for underutilization? Um, and you talked a little bit about this. I don't know if you want to, um, and, you know, Sonia mentioned a couple of, of, of this too, um, if you want to Uh, Explain a bit more on that, Andrea.
4: Yeah. And, um, you know, um, I did share a a copy of a a publication that CPEM put out, I think in 2021 now. Um, It is more specific to, you know, what some of the reasons are for why people don't access mental health um, under Medi Cal. But I think there are a lot of common themes that we see throughout, you know, like the healthcare system. So one of the things um, that we found was just, Um, you know, like the amount of time that it takes to find a provider, um, right, being like a really big barrier, having to go through all these complex systems of, you know, oh, okay, searches, now finding someone that's close to me, somebody that speaks the same language as I do, right, there's so many different layers to that. And it really reduces uh, the amount of options that people have. And people Um, after a while, just kind of get frustrated and stop looking um, or stop that whole process entirely. Um, There's also confusion around, um, you know, like uh, language access, right? And so this is something that we already know, right? A lot of websites, um, you know, will use like Google Translate or maybe you're not translated in culturally competent ways, right? And that is a really big issue, especially for the AAPI community. Um, you know, where a lot of translations might be directly translated, but they're not accounting for um, you know, some of those uh needs. And I'll put a specific example. Um, you know, we were working with a partner um, you know, on um, refugee and, and immigrant mental health, and they were talking about how, you know, like the word for um you know, like, um, help in, like, mental health on a website was directly translated. And in their language, it meant, like, crazy, right? Mm -hmm. And so, like, things like that, right, where things are not being um, measured in culturally competent ways that deter people from getting care in the first place.
2: And we have one left, but I did want to get to this last question, specifically for Martha. It says, would love to hear more about the community collab efforts. Are there any links with the details of the outcomes? I don't know if there's a link you can share, if you can briefly explain in a minute. (laughs) So,
5: I mean, it's, I'll give you an example. Um, One of the things that we recognize, you know, we as health plans need to lean very heavily on community and some of these organizations that have been doing this work for many, many years But we need systems change, right? In order to really make an impact, we need real systems change. And so as an example, we supported the uh, California Coalition for Black Birth Justice. And what they're really very focused on is driving a coordinated agenda to mobilize key stakeholders across the the industry um, to drive policy change. And as a result of some of that, just as an example, um, one of the ideas that's being implemented by CMS is this idea that hospitals should be designated as birth equity, have a birth equity designation so that people understand that the the practices within their hospitals are friendly to people of color. And so those are the kinds of things that we really need to do a lot more of, Um, but it's that kind of thing. And on our website, we, we also have some information about community health worker partnerships and a whole host of other things that we've done over the years. Um, where we've piloted incubated ideas and then they actually turned out to be now full, full benefits. The dual is, is an example of one of the things that we did in LA County that made a significant improvement in, in um outcomes.
2: And now it's you know it's a benefit, but we did that many, many years ago. Thank you um, for that. And I think that's time. So thank you all for joining me in this conversation. I know we could have talked a whole other hour about this. Um, So I'll uh, uh, kick it back to Tim.
0: Yeah. Thank you all for uh, participating. Uh... The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot. And we'll see you next week.